From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal from the Malibu Film Society. And today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to talk about the shockingly true untold story of the National Enquirer. From its earliest days and association with the mafia to present day connections to President Trump. All exposed in a sensational new documentary, Scandalous. With us to talk about it, director Mark Landsman. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much, Scott. Glad to be here. Sorry to be so over the top, but kind of in keeping with the whole theme here. It's a slightly over the top subject. So why National Enquirer? You know, the sort of earliest inception of this project, so the earliest ideas I think came from just being a person in a grocery store in 2015, being aware of what was in my visual eyeline and sort of noticing that things were strange and unbelievably imbalanced. And that was just the first thing, was just sort of this discomfort I was feeling with the racks at the front of the counter that I didn't really at the time have language for. I I just knew that it was strange. But you'd been on shopping centers before. Why 2015? Why suddenly? Well, I think we probably all, many of us, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, realized that something was different about our grocery stores in 2015 leading up to the election. There was an increasing amount of political propaganda, you could say, in your face on the covers of our supermarket tabloids. And that was unprecedented, certainly for me. But then in 2017, around the holidays, my wife's best friend called and said, hey, my dad is coming into town and why don't we all go out for dinner? So we went. And after a couple of rounds of drinks at the Cheesecake Factory, he starts telling us about his early days as a reporter and articles editor at a rising publication called the National Enquirer. And the stories were nuts. They were off the wall. I mean, espionage, checkbook journalism, bribery, disguises, bottomless expense accounts, global glamorous travel, all kinds of ethically blurred tactics. It sounded like an Ocean's Eleven movie, to be honest with you. So I thought, well, this is fantastic. I didn't think too much of it. And then in April of 2018, Ronan Farrow's story broke in The New Yorker. And um, about about catch and kill and about AMI's relationship with then candidate Trump. Once Ronan's story broke in The New Yorker, which I thought was just, first of all, just an astonishing piece of journalism. This idea of catch and kill was sort of top of mind, but nobody quite understood it. I called my friend's father again, and his name is Malcolm Balfour. And he said, well, it just so happens I'm going to be in L.A. next week. Why don't you come have some drinks with me and some of my former Inquirer buddies? And so I, of course, said absolutely, and I did, and I sat very quietly while they regaled each other <laughs> with stories. They talked the way that war buddies talk from the trenches, you know, these, these unbelievable stories. And it was at that point that I knew that we had a film, and I talked to Malcolm a little bit more, and I said, you know, would you be interested in sort of being the first domino in this project? And he said, yes. And that's how that sparked the project. Did you, at that first dinner, understand what the film was going to be from beginning to end? No, no. That's the amazing thing about a documentary is that it's a wave. You catch the wave, but you don't quite know where it's going to take you. And it was impossible at that point to know what would happen in terms of current events. I mean, no one had a crystal ball. Nobody knew the degree to which anything was going on. And it's only in retrospect that you really see it. There were some fundamental questions that we wanted to answer, namely, how the hell did we get here? How did we get to a place where the very notion of a fact in 
journalism is a debate, that there's a question about that, that the public is getting their information from such diverse polemic camps. How did we get to that? That we had a reality star who previously had been a tabloid darling sitting in the most powerful office in the world. How did that happen? And what role, if any, did this quote-unquote sleazy supermarket tabloid have in that process? So it was really kind of wanting to understand history and wanting to sort of connect the dots. A lot of us were just baffled by what was going on. And so that was the impetus for the film. You've described the film as a classic 50s horror B-movie. Talk to us about that analogy. I love that you asked that question. So I love those movies, right? The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein, The Werewolf, The Mummy, The Blob. Those are great films. King Kong is my ultimate favorite. So what happens in those movies, right? Originally, there is this creature that in the beginning is fairly, I'm not going to say docile, but is not the terror that's about to eat Manhattan, right? And so the Inquirer really felt similar. The first sort of mad scientist was a man named Generoso Pope Jr. And he was quite a genius, a savant. He had gone to MIT. First of all, he was the son of the most powerful Italian-American in New York City, Generoso Pope Sr., who owned colonial sand and cement, which poured the cement for the Empire State Building, uh, among other places. He also was the publisher of Il Progresso, which was the most powerful and influential Italian-American weekly in the country. So he was incredibly influential. This guy was a genius, his son, and he was the mad inventor who created the National Enquirer back in the early 70s. His idea for what that paper would be was very, very different than what it would become many decades later under the current leadership. So that's why I liken this whole thing to a B-movie. Initially, Frankenstein is not out to kill small children and terrorize the village, but the monster becomes that, largely because he becomes agitated and he transforms. So we wanted to look at how this publication started in one iteration, morphed over time, and became something ultimately that was deleterious. You've just touched on four points I want to follow up on. (laughs) Uh, First among these, Generoso Pope, senior and junior. Are the rumors true? Well, you know, I don't think they're really rumors as much as historical fact. I mean, you know, look, neither one of them was quote unquote in the mob. And I want to very much respect Italian Americans who are listening to this podcast because I think it's easy. It's just kind of lowbrow to be like, oh, well, powerful Italian American must be in the mob. But It's indisputable that the money that launched what would become the National Enquirer came from Frank Costello, who was the head of the Gambino crime family. And it's undeniable that Generoso Pope Sr. was the most powerful and politically influential Italian-American in New York and possibly the United States at that time. So I don't have any other facts beyond that. So I can't substantiate journalistically. What people say, including Generoso Pope's own son, was that the paper was mafia-related back in the day. So how did that influence early content, if at all? Well, I don't know if it influenced early content as much as I think that it inspired Pope's unbelievable determination and drive. This is a man who truly had an anything-for-the-stories ethos, and he didn't take no for an answer. And I think that's because he witnessed his father not taking no for an answer. He didn't have to take no for an answer. It's not an accident that they call him the godfather of tabloids. He's a Corleone character. He's straight out of the movies. And that was another reason why we wanted to make the movie, because he's a larger-than-life American character like Vito Corleone. And he kind of ruled the Inquirer like that. People were in awe of him, and they were terrified of him. 
People felt incredibly fortunate to be in his employment, and no one bought a car above like a pacer because they might not have had a parking space on Monday. There was no job security. He kept you running. He kept you on your toes. He kept you competing with your deskmate. So you were constantly looking over your shoulder. It was not an easy environment to work in, and I think a lot of that might have come from some knowledge of how other organizations work. So what are the key turning points in the publication during the Generoso Pope years? I think the first key turning point was going to gore. We're talking about headless bodies and topless bars, that kind of thing, that kind of gore. So when Generoso Pope acquired the New York Inquirer in the early 50s, it was a racing rag. It had a circulation of under 20,000 local news and bets. And basically he was really uh, trying to look for a way to boost circulation. How was he going to get eyeballs to this paper? His father had been ridiculously successful in publishing, and he thought, okay, I want to step out of my father's gigantic shoes, and I want to make a name for myself. And the story goes that he was driving on one of the New York parkways one day in the late 50s, and he came across a head-on collision. And what he noticed was all on the sides of the road, there were hundreds of rubberneckers angling to look at the carnage. And this was a very bloody carnage car crash. And he had an epiphany in that moment and said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want for my papers. He basically went to crime photographers. He got access to police reports, all of this. And he began to publish the most graphic, the most violent, really the most disgusting photographs you could possibly imagine. Man drives spike through head, woman stomps child, you know, baby burned a lot, like horrible stuff. And it was gross but circulation shot through the roof. So that was the first big benchmark was he understood the American psyche. And at that time, the lowest hanging fruit for him was car collisions and murder scenes. There's a big transition from that to winding up at the cash register because that's right. Grocery stores don't want that at the cash register. That's exactly right. Well, he wasn't thinking grocery stores at the time that the circulation popped to a million in the 50s. It wasn't until the 60s when Americans were sort of going to the suburbs and the classic newsstand, when the newsboy extra extra, that was all going away. So he was realizing, well, we have a problem on our hands here because where are people going to buy our paper? And all of our readership is flocking to the suburbs. So he and the Inquirer leadership at the time identified the one place where they knew that Americans would be several times a week without a doubt, and that was the American supermarket. And not only did he identify that it was the supermarket where he could get his captive audience, but he identified this very interesting untapped piece of real estate, which was at the front of every single supermarket checkout counter. So he was a bit of like a marketing genius in some ways, like a bit of a Nostradamus. Where are the magazines typically in your grocery store back in the 60s? They're all the way back by the toothpaste in some weird aisle that maybe you don't even go to. But he said, why would they be there? I want it to be point of purchase and I want it to be eye level. And this guy went to MIT briefly and was an engineer. So he basically designed the racks, the racks that you see at the front of the supermarkets. That was Generoso Pope's idea. Wow. And he designed the rack so that you would have Family Circle, Reader's Digest, TV Guide, but right in the center, front and center eye level in the largest slot, that was the National Enquirer. Mm. And that's when it just took off. But headless bodies and car crashes were not going to go over well with Missy Smith in Kansas City buying her milk and Cheerios. So he had to drastically change his editorial, his content, in order to cater to exactly what she would want. And that's kind of his second big epiphany and his second big genius was, who's my reader? 
And he identified her as this woman in Kansas City. He called her Missy Smith. And she was the average American woman, he called her. And he knew everything about her from a marketing research standpoint. He knew where she shopped. He knew how many times a week she shopped. He knew what she bought. He knew what she would want to go home and hand her husband to read. He called it Hey Martha. The woman would read it. She'd give it to her husband. He'd be reading it and he would yell across the room, Hey Martha, can you believe that they found another UFO in Roswell? He also knew that she went to the beauty parlor X number of times, you know, a month, and that at the beauty parlor, she would want to gossip with her girlfriends about celebrities, psychic phenomenon, medical cures, miracle cures, fad diets. So this was kind of a bit of genius because nobody was doing this. Mm -hmm. And so that was the next big movement was get into the grocery stores and give Missy Smith in Kansas City exactly what she's craving. And then the next huge moment was the death of Elvis Presley. That's when they realized that they could not only sell a million copies a week, they could sell seven million copies a week. And it was said that for every one copy that was bought, three people read it. So you're talking about, you know, nearly 25 million Americans reading this thing. I think that story, the story of the Elvis death and the way it was covered by the Inquirer is really instructive in terms of how this publication operated. You got to remember, General Sopope was so rich. This was a one-man operation, and he was God in that operation. And he had an endless bank account, a bottomless account, and he was not at all averse to spending cash. You know, at the time, people really weren't talking about celebrities' deaths. It was considered very macabre and kind of off-color. Pope was the opposite of that you know, his background. He's, he was all for that. So he instructed these guys. He said, I don't care what story you get. I want a shot of Elvis Presley in the coffin. You didn't have the editor of the New York Times asking for that. But General Sopope demanded that. And the film uncovers how that happened. You know, it's a short leap from the death of Elvis to the O.J. Simpson trial. And that was a 10-year time span, 15-year time span. That was a 20-year time span. So during that time is when Generoso Pope passes, newspaper passes into corporate hands. What are the key things that are happening inside the Inquirer before, during, after, and getting us to that point? Well, uh, you know, after Pope dies, there's a, there's a limbo period, and the paper falls into different hands. And then really the next sort of big time period that we focus on is the Steve Cause years. And Steve is a fascinating character, a very much a departure from Generoso Pope. Pope was kind of a working man's mega multimillionaire. Uh, you know, he wore like Sears and Roebuck shirts and drove, you know, an Oldsmobile Cutlass and was just kind of a really like a working man's guy. Cause had come from Harvard and was a little bit more, you know, they called him a schoolboy. And it was a different kind of a climate. And he also diversified the paper. He hired more women, more people of color, the stories and the editorial, just everything changed under that. It was kind of like the blossoming of the Inquirer that a lot of us associate with. Glossy photographs of Whitney Houston or Oprah or Madonna or whatever. Was there anything during the course of your investigation that's maybe not in the movie, but that just genuinely floored you? We put everything in the movie because what's the point? You know, we're not doing catch and kill. We're doing catch and reveal. That's the point of a documentary. Why would we conceal anything? The filmmakers are just kind of on the front lines in service of the viewer. It would be an injustice to the story to kind of shelve stuff. Certainly, The Inquirer has a 50-year history, so we had to make some decisions. We're not going to go into John Edwards when we're going into Gary Hart. That's just redundant. You have a very precious amount of real estate in a feature film. You can't waste time. 
and you can't really repeat the same thing twice. If the audience gets the gist, why bang them over the head with something else? Right. You know, somebody can Google the Inquirer and they can find out that they busted John Edwards. That's fine. It didn't feel relevant to our story. Our story was about, okay, what are the real benchmark moments, the milestones, mm-hmm. you know, that said something about us as a culture? You know, that's the thing. I mean, the Inquirer is this unusual mirror that really is just a reflection of who we were at any given moment in time. One of the things that struck me in watching the film is that you don't come at it with any particular viewpoint or judgment. It's just very fact-based, straightforward. This is what's happened over the course of the evolution of this publication. Why did you make that decision not to have that kind of a viewpoint? Well, I would argue that we absolutely have that kind of viewpoint. Oh, you do? Oh, absolutely. Look, any filmmaker, and I think even any journalist these days who tells you they don't have a point of view, is lying to you. How do you not have a point of view as a human being? Your brain is a filtration device, and you're impacted by your life experience. You're impacted by all kinds of things. You're impacted by facts, but you're impacted as a storyteller. In fact, the catalyst for telling a story comes normally from a few base emotions. For me, oftentimes, it's outrage. Like, I can't believe it. Or astonishment, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we make films. Why else would we dedicate two years of our lives to a pretty rough and thankless (laughs) pursuit? You know, documentary filmmaking is not a walk in the park. And filmmaking, period, is not a walk in the park. It's tough. So we absolutely have a point of view, but that's not to say that it's not balanced. But even balance is tricky, Scott. Like, so the film presents the facts, but the facts themselves tell a story. What we're not interested in being is pedantic. I'm not interested, none of my collaborators were interested in beating you over the head with the obvious. You know, we like to think that people who are sitting down to watch a film have a brain and have their own points of view. So maybe what you're perceiving is a more nuanced look, but in no way does the film shy away from its influence on culture and sort of what the culture has become. That's why we have people like Kenaletta, Maggie Haberman, Carol Bernstein, really giving us some context for what this thing did to journalism because it did have a very damaging effect on the state of journalism today in America. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even think that Inquirer reporters themselves deny that. Some people even admit it in the film. Hi, this is Jenny Curtis, producer of Hollywood Unscripted. We hope this show is igniting your passion as much as it is ours. Please subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It really does matter as we bring you more inspiring conversations with the filmmakers you admire. Now, back to the show. I want to jump forward a little bit in time. Generoso Pope passes away. The publication moves into corporate ownership. And at this point, I want to bring in the man behind the curtain. Our CEO of Kurtco Media, Bill Curtis, spent almost 40 years in magazine publishing and knew all of the key players from that point forward. So I'm going to ask Bill, welcome. You really want me in? Yeah, of course we do. Come on. Mark, how you doing? Hey, Bill. Actually, I I was listening to a couple of these chats you were just having, which I found to be so interesting. Do you mind if I go back and ask, as the role of director for a documentary like Scandalous, how involved were you in being in the interviews with the writers and the editors and pulling out all that information? That was really remarkable. You got people to admit things that couldn't have been easy. 
Well, there's no writer. It's just me interviewing them. I mean, there are editors, obviously, after the fact, but, you know, we, myself and I, I had two very amazing producers, Kristen Vario and Jennifer Ashrudik, and an incredible team of people working together, and we did a lot of research, months of research, and then prepared the interviews, and then I conducted the interviews with everybody. And so you found these people and knew that they would be somewhat forthcoming or you just worked through the process and you found yourself in a great spot? You know, in documentaries, you never know how forthcoming someone's going to be until you're sitting in the room with them. I think in the case of the National Enquirer, it was very tricky because everybody is very sort of mistrusting. How are you going to screw me? What are you going to ask me? This, that, or the other. I mean, look, initially, this whole thing started with my wife's best friend's dad. And I had a wonderful rapport with him. So I knew at the very least that Malcolm, who had been an old timer at the Enquirer in the 70s, who didn't have an NDA, he was just going to chat and just be really open. And he introduced me to other people who were legendary reporters who were in the early days. So I knew that some of the old guard would be great. Some of the old guard didn't return my calls. Some of the old guard actually started to cast aspersions upon me and the project. Very early on, they have a Facebook page and, you know, like, who is this guy and what's he doing? And I'm sure you remember this from your publishing days. It's like a domino effect. You get one person and then there's several other people who agree to do it. Once we got Ian Calder, who was the original sort of conciliary, he was the number two to General Sopope, a number of people said yes. That was an incredible get. But you also had this remarkable epiphany to bring in one of the most respected writers in the country. You brought in Carl Bernstein to comment about his perspective, which of course lended such credibility to the whole process. Yeah, it was really important for us to have context, right? You can let these guys wax on and on all day long, and then you have no understanding of perspective. It's like an echo chamber. So it was really important to us that we brought in people who had made a career out of pursuing journalism on a ferociously ethical level. So Maggie Haberman, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Carl Bernstein, obviously sort of professor emeritus of American journalism, Ken Aletta, New Yorker writer, author, and Keith Kelly from the New York Post. It was really important just to have that perspective, not to sort of do a point-counterpoint, but just to remind the audience that this thing was not happening in a vacuum, really also to understand the effect it was having at the time among mainstream journalists. They were flipping out because this became an issue of commerce. This was about money. This was about business. This was about the owners of these large media outlets realizing we can't compete with these tabloid guys. So if we can't compete with them, we probably need to start to sort of maybe adopt some of these styles and tactics. And if you look at today's media, Scott, you're absolutely right. There's that aspect of it. You can't deny the tabloidization of our media. It's happened. And Maggie Haberman is particularly amazing because she cut her teeth at the New York Post. She was a New York tabloid writer for years, and now she is probably the most respected journalist in America today. And I thought it was brilliant to bring in Keith Kelly because, frankly, the million or two people who were in the publishing field have followed Keith Kelly for 30 years. That's right. The media was and, and he is the guy who knows everything about media, so I just thought it was brilliant to bring him into the film. Keith was so great. You know, what I love about Keith Kelly is he's a very by-the-book guy. He's a tabloid guy, but not in a sensationalist way. He, he's a New York journalist. He's going to give you the facts. So let's set the stage. Bill, it's interesting because you and David Pecker, who eventually took control of AMI, 
you worked together in CBS magazines, is that correct? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure you could actually say that David Pecker worked together with anybody. Uh, that wasn't his style. But Talk to us about who he was. I just want everybody to know who's listening that that actually is his last name, as well as perhaps his personality. <laughs> well, my favorite, I think it was the New York Daily News, maybe the New York Post, my favorite headline of all was, uh, after all this business with Trump came out, was... Um, in huge letters on the front page of, of a paper was hard times for Pecker. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it was very simple. David came up through the finance side of publishing. He was the CFO at CBS magazines, and he worked with a guy named Tom Ryder and Peter Diamandis, both of whom are absolute saints and visionaries in content and running a business of publishing. David, who kept track of the dollars and cents, came in at a time where the value of publications was very high. And he was a good financial packager of companies. So he helped Diamandis fund the purchase of CBS magazines, which became Diamandis Communications. And then he helped that go to Hachette, and Hachette made him CEO little different job than CFO. By the time he went to purchase American media, he became involved at a level in the editorial and the decision-making at that organization far beyond what the insight of a CFO could bring. So let's talk about that, Mark, picking up from American media's acquisition and what happened over the years following and how that changed the ultimate course of National Enquirer. So what I can say, you know, now I'm thinking about your earlier question about sort of what was left on the cutting room floor. And one of the things that I guess I'm remiss about is that we didn't include people's sort of firsthand accounts of the climate change that happened when Mr. Pecker took over in 1999. We have many people in our interviews who describe that moment as pretty stark. It was very, very different. It was very much like there's a new sheriff in town and there's a new mandate in town. And Steve Koz, who was the editor in chief of the Enquirer at the time and was, you know, some could say kind of a visionary. He brought unprecedented legitimacy to this paper that never had that kind of legitimacy before. Cause had ushered in the era of the OJ coverage, which caused the New York Times and David Margolik to call the Enquirer required reading in the OJ Simpson case. So this is the kind of brain power. And Steve Cause had come from Harvard, and he was really interested in like bringing in some integrity to this paper that people sort of joked about lining their kitty litter with. And when Pecker came in, you know, he really you, wasn't. You fire Michelangelo because he's too expensive, and you hire a different artist to finish the project. Yeah, there you go. Jobs were slashed, budgets were slashed, and there was this idea that the paper was going to go to an advertising model that was become more slick, which was really antithetical to what the National Enquirer was. The Enquirer was Americana, mainstream, and also just, I think, the way that people felt like they were treated was just very different. It was kind of a, a mom and pop kind of a vibe. Even though people were terrified, there was a lot of camaraderie and stuff. It just, the climate really changed. And of course, the content changed. Well, and he stopped spending money. They stopped buying stories. He fired all the good writers and editors because they were the most expensive. And he felt that it was a financially driven decision machine, which obviously that wasn't. You made it very clear that they were artists. Whether you agreed or not with their art is another story, but... Certainly, as you sat with some of the people that you interviewed, 
and you realized the massive pile of information that you had. Because one of the things that I think you did so well in this movie is you actually went from interview to interview, logically finding the story, and you created this beginning, middle, and end in Scandalous that I thought was absolutely brilliant. You were a little bit nice to David Pecker because it makes it look like he sold the company for a lot of money at the end. He's still involved. You know, the interesting thing about this sale and about the Inquirer is that, you know, how do you find an end to a story that's unfolding in the news every day. One of the things that we had to do editorially was decide fairly early on, okay, we're not chasing the news cycle because there is some sort of breaking news about AMI, about David Pecker, about, you know, Dylan Howard, whatever, every week. I mean, sometimes every day. And, you know, we finished the movie in July. Ronan Farrell's book was released in October. This is like this mushroom cloud that never stops mushrooming. So how do you tell a story like that? And the other thing was that we wanted this thing really to be a reflection on the evolution, origin, and impact of the paper leading up to the 2016 election. So we set a framework for it. And that helped us tremendously because otherwise you get totally overwhelmed. It's such a huge story. People have so many different associations with it. So we had to stay incredibly concentrated. We had to focus in on the stories that furthered the story. It's not that much different than decisions you make as a narrative filmmaker. How do you continue to keep unfolding and unfolding and you're wanting people to tell more until you kind of come to some sense of like, okay, that's all we can tell you for now, folks. And then to answer your question, I love the sort of Greek chorus, Rashomon style of storytelling in documentaries. I always have. When you get people who kind of went through an experience together, it's like having a bunch of different colors to paint with. You're making one big canvas, but all these different colors bring something else out of it. Did you say to yourself, okay, these are the stories I'm going to focus on, but I have a pile of other information I have to sift through? How did you get to the point where you could put together this compilation in a logical order? A lot of research. Hours and hours and days and weeks and months of really researching this, reading the stories themselves, reading commentary on the stories, and really looking at the stories that were seminal. That's really important. Like, what were the stories that were really milestones? Because for us, when you're making a movie about an inanimate object, right, a newspaper, you have to make a decision about who your main character is. And for us, right off the bat, we knew it was the monster herself. The National Enquirer was our main character. So you anthropomorphize that character and you kind of think about how does the audience first encounter that inanimate object, this newspaper? Origin story, right? Where does the origin come from? What's the inciting incident with this character? And then how do you sort of like arc that story over an act structure? And that's the thing that documentarians and narrative filmmakers alike share in common. It is storytelling. You have to engage people. And so you use the same kind of tools that you have in your toolkit to do that. And luckily for us with a story like the National Enquirer, the stories that were these kind of pivotal moments, they stand out. And everybody kind of has consensus on that. So you ask people questions. I didn't know anything about that. I was never an Enquirer reader growing up. I didn't care. But I was fascinated Mm -hmm. with it. I certainly was fascinated when it started impacting our world. As director, where you were also doing the fact-checking, you had to kind of decide which were going to be your important stories and what was going to be the music behind that moment. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about the emotion that you got out during different phases of the music behind your facts and figures and interviews. I love that you asked that question. So first of all, worked with an extraordinary composer named Craig DeLeon, who really understands the power of the music to evoke a tone. I think that we really also work hard to not have the music be so heavy-handed, and I like the way that Craig can be very 
very minimalist. And we also had moments where we wanted to evoke a period, right? This is a story that starts in the 50s and ends in the current day. I had a brilliant music supervisor, a guy named Carter Little, and we were able to get some really great music that we felt evoked the story and the time period. I and mean, that's some of the more fun parts of the filmmaking process is how you involve music. The Inquirer is so kitschy and so campy. You don't really have to work that hard to evoke a tone. The paper itself has a tone. You don't have to impose a tone upon it, which made the search for all of our archival material and our music really fun because we're like, okay, what's going to complement this image of, I don't know, Burt Reynolds or whatever it is and Lonnie Anderson. Or, you, know, it's like you wanted to have fun with it. And the paper sort of helped us along with that, the kitsch of it. So how did you fact check what the writers and, and editors told you? Well, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of it is sort of comparing people's interviews to each other. A reporter might report, for example, on what went on as she was exploring or investigating an alleged story with Bill Cosby. And then you have the story from her point of view. And then you also have the story from the editor who actually received the material. So that's really great. Documentation is another thing. Reporter's notes. Did you put any of the editors or writers in the same room at no. the same time? No, 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 no. We tried, actually. Initially, we thought, well, maybe are there some verite opportunities with this film. And there's a gathering of all of the former Inquirer employees and AMI employees, this thing called the Tab Bash every year. And we really tried to get our cameras in to film it, but we were declined. Mm. Yeah. But you also noted that you reached out to David Pecker and Many times. tried to get him to Many come times. on in. Yeah. In fact, my producer went to their offices in New York and met with them and said, we want to offer you this opportunity. And we were declined. I wasn't surprised, but we definitely did due diligence and tried to reach out to David, you know, maybe made offers available to Dylan Howard, made offers available to Barry Levine, and a number of people, and people declined for obvious reasons. I'd like to know how you felt during the times that you discovered our current day issues, the Trump issues, the catch and kill concept. And what I want to know is when you went home at night and you had the real story, how did you feel? I think you feel a sense of obligation. You're shepherding a story from obscurity into the light. And the intention of this project is to say, this is what happened when people are sitting around in journalism classes 10, 15, 20 years from now, and they want to look back on this bizarre thing that happened in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, what happened to our media. Hopefully this will be something that they can draw upon in, in the time capsule. But they'll also draw upon Brooke Gladstone's outstanding book, The Influencing Machine. They'll go back to Marshall McLuhan. They'll go back to other publications and films and podcasts that tell people, look, you're a consumer of media. And if you're not aware of that, then you're a sponge. And there's a danger in that because you are basically surrendering your ability to process information and make decisions on your own behalf that are for your own good. And much in the same way that we need to pay attention these days to what we eat and drink, we need to pay attention these days to the media that we consume, even the media that we don't overtly consume, but is in our sphere of influence, like a tabloid newspaper that is eye level every time you go to the grocery store. That is having an influence on you, whether you know it or not. That is tantamount to a billboard on a highway that you pass every single day. You don't totally glance at it because you're going to crash your car, but you see it. It comes into your sphere of influence, and then who knows how that influences you? And Keith Kelly is the one who says this very succinctly in our film. They were subtly influencing opinions. That's what the media does every single day. The whole idea of this film is to really draw attention to our own accountability as media consumers. Mm -hmm. 
when you sit in one of your screenings and people are leaving and inevitably they're talking to each other about what they just saw, what do you want them to say about Scandalous? I want them to be kind of agitated. I want them to kind of say, God, can we just go somewhere and talk about this? What they say is not my concern. Martha Graham has this really amazing quote that she gave to artists, young artists. And she said, you know, your job is to be a channel for the story. In her case, it was choreography, right? But how what's coming through you is received is not your concern. So yes, I want people to be entertained. I want them to have a good time. I want them to feel like they saw a movie, that they were moved. I'm a cinephile. I love filmmaking. I love films. But I want people to be provoked. You know, we live in a culture where so much of our processing of entertainment is just a sedentary, passive experience. I'm not into that. I want you and your friends to walk out and be like, let's go to the bar and talk about this, or let's go home and talk about this, or and then talk about it with other people and get a conversation going. Because, you know, people are just sort of off in their camps. No one's talking in America anymore. The idea of dialogue and really kind of connecting to each other and exchanging ideas. Films have an opportunity to do that particularly films in a theater, you know? I want people to see this movie in a theater, in a collective experience. You hear other people laughing, gasping, kind of like being exasperated or angry. That's the best part of being in a movie theater. You don't get that in your living room or your bedroom when you're watching it on your, you know, on your flat screen or your phone or your watch. As you finished this movie, how did you end up feeling about the subject? Did you end up loving the Inquirer or did you hate it? You know, for me, it's never about the thing. It's about the people. The great thing about making movies is that you encounter all kinds of people that you may not have encountered. I mean, I don't spend a whole lot of time hanging out with tabloid reporters from the 70s and 80s and 90s. And what you realize is people are infinitely more complex than their jobs. They're more complex, they're more nuanced, and that's a great thing. I'm going to just say, like, this guy right now has us all in polemics. It's black and white. I mean, he's got us all thinking about tabloid headlines. It's just inane. It's not the way that humans are. It's not the way that we are organically as Americans. It's horrible. It's a joke. And hopefully it will be fleeting. I'm not saying that there's some halcyon days that we're going to get back to. America has deep, deep problems. You're deeply divided. But any opportunity to get out there and explore who people really are, which is why I think being a podcaster, being a filmmaker, being the host of a film society, anything you can do that brings people together from different backgrounds, that's where the real interesting, that's where the juice is. If you're just staying there, you're staring at a bunch of people who are all talking about the same thing and, and barking at their relatives who think differently. How boring is that? So tell us, Mark, how do our listeners see this movie? First, they can go to scandalousfilm.com. It's a Magnolia Pictures release. We're being released in, I think, 15 theaters around the country on November 15th. And then eventually in the spring of 2020, we'll be on CNN, which we're very excited about as a CNN Films presentation. And they were your partner in this process? Thankfully, yes. They're absolutely fantastic can you tell us a little about that experience? Just wonderful. I mean, the, the folks at CNN Films, Amy Antelis, Courtney Sexton, Alexandra Hannibal, they're really filmmaker advocates. They ask the tough questions and they put you through the ringer in the best ways possible. They're really ideal partners. And for me, it was a dream to work with them. And yeah, I was really, really grateful. Hi, I'm Jenny. I'm a producer since we're all jumping in on this one. The backgrounds for each of your interview subjects were so beautiful. Was it just that was their home? Where were these locations? How did you find them? So the backgrounds to the interviews were, we really took a lot of time to think about it. And it was a collaboration between myself and our excellent cinematographer, Michael Pessa, who I've known 
since our days in film school together, and our producer, Jennifer Ash Rudick, who herself is an extraordinary artist, and she is a writer and editor of these very beautiful books of beautiful homes. She's just really got an eye for architecture and design, and we didn't want to film somebody with, like, a bunch of books behind them, or a vase with flowers, or, like, do the kind of neutral behind-the-music background or whatever. We wanted it to feel very cinematic, so we knew we wanted to shoot very wide. We wanted to be able to have the background somehow be a little bit Baroque and a little bit over the top because the Inquirer is Baroque and over the top. But no, with the exception of only one person, those were not their homes. But they were really extraordinary locations in New York and Palm Beach and Los Angeles that we that we thought a lot about. I would really love to know, Mark, are you changed by each of your films? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the way that people talk about feeling changed after reading a great book, a great movie, great museum, exhibition, great play. I mean, yeah. Anytime I have an opportunity to just dive deep into something, I feel like, yeah, I'm intrinsically changed by it. In what ways? Well, first of all, it's just so great to be able to just kind of settle in and focus on one thing. I mean, look at the culture we live in. It's like, how do you focus on anything? It's just like we're constantly bombarded with so much stuff. So to be able to like sink into a story and tell it, nothing better. It's like being able to sit down and have a long, amazing dinner with your best friends in the world for like a year. Mm -hmm. You know, that's amazing. So yeah, you're absolutely changed by it. And then you also have this whole other group of people and stories and anecdotes and information in your brain that's that's kind of cool. Had my wife's best friend not been a legendary tabloid reporter and charmed us over drinks at the Cheesecake Factory, I wouldn't be sitting here. You know, as a filmmaker, it's like you're sitting there, the ocean is flat, you're sitting on your board, and then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, and you have a choice, right? It's like, I'm either going to stand up and attempt to catch it, or I'm going to get crushed by it, or I'm just going to like dive <laughs> under and just whatever, you know, <laughs> hang out, hope that another one comes. You know, you can't, can't pass up too many of them. Does it make you think differently about how you do your job, given that you've just talked to all of these other reporters and interviewers? I think it's really important as a storyteller to kind of keep checking your own instrument. I don't think a pilot gets behind the wheel of a plane before, hopefully, she or he checks the instruments before taking off. It's like, where are you at? Where your bias is at? How are you telling the story? What do you want? As Bill asked, I love that question. Like, what do you want people to think about or talk about when you leave the theater? That's, that's really important to think about before you, before you take off in the plane. It's like, what kind of ride are you looking for? You know, you don't want to crash. But so through that, did you have a favorite moment in all of the creating of this film in the year? How long did it take you again? It took just over a year. Is there a moment that stands out? I got to think about that. (laughs) Yeah. I had a lot of really favorite moments, but I think that it's kind of an astonishing moment for me when I'm sitting in an interview with someone who is particularly defensive and guarded and is turning the interview into a sparring match. And you kind of have to get very Aikido and very into sort of martial arts and just kind of wait them out. You really do. You just have to wait them out because eventually their humanity will happen. And that, for me, was really interesting with these guys. One person in particular who I I won't mention, but he was tough, really tough. And he just fought me on every single question and wanted to spin it. I mean, these are tabloid guys, so there's no better spin doctors than these guys. And just to kind of wait him out, you know, I knew he was going to crack eventually, and, uh, and he did. That was a really great lesson in kind of just trusting your instincts. And uh, Okay. In general, how did they feel about the fact that you were telling this story? The feedback from them has been, you know, you, you captured something, and um, 
we'll see. I mean, most of them haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for inviting me in here. It was a pleasure to take part in your interview. And Mark Landsman, I think the scandalous movie is, in fact, scandalous. And you should be very proud of what you created. Thank you. I think it's really evident what's been going on if you have a pulse mm-hmm. and you've been alive for the last four years. And I think that regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, if you're curious about this publication, we did our very, very best to present you the story of how that publication unfolded, how it began, the critical moments in its history, and an attempt to bring you to how we got to where we are today and how the particular characters that we're seeing in our politics and our media, how they in some ways got there as well. So the film really goes into that in a more granular way. For those of you listening, you have to see this movie either in the theater or if not in 2020, it'll be on CNN and it's worth your time. And that's a wrap on our latest edition of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal with the Malibu Film Society. Thanks to all of our guests today. Thanks to our producers and engineers and everyone who participated. And we'll look forward to having you back for our next show. Hollywood Unscripted is presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal with guest Mark Landsman and additional guest Bill Curtis. The score from Scandalous, featured as the music in this episode, was composed by Craig Delion and provided courtesy of Magnolia Pictures. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co. Media, produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, recorded at Kurt Co. Media's Malibu Podcast Studios. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the movies you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs>